Hi, I'm Isabella. And I'm Jeff. We're two Asian Australians who want to explore what it means to be Asian in the West. And you're listening to As I Am. What an episode. I feel like I left that a changed woman to an extent. Mm. How do you feel? No, I feel exactly the same. And I guess that's exactly <laughs> why we're doing this. This is the first time we've ever done essentially an afterthought. Uh, we feel, mm. uh, both Isabella and I, that we were a bit flabbergasted in that conversation. <laughs> Didn't <laughs> yeah. really feel like we had the right things to say. And I do actually remember pausing for about 20 seconds because uh, I was just like, I don't know what to say right now. I'm just processing. Uh, speaking to Matt was an incredible experience. Uh, he's super articulate, mm. able to convey his points extremely well. So it was uh, it was really, really good. And I, I said at the end, I thought that was probably the best episode for me anyway um, that we've done. And yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Keen to get your thoughts on that one, Isabella. Oh, I completely agree. I feel like to an extent I was almost like starstruck, if I can say yeah, that. Yeah, a little bit. I feel like Matt, <laughs> no, like Matt, like, you know, gave us these beautiful monologues and he he's so articulate and he um, beautifully convey, you know, his experiences um, of being a disabled person. And to be honest, I think a lot of the time in that episode, I felt really out of my depth. Mm. And I think Jeff and I both had this feeling where we were kind of like, oh my God, like, how do we even like talk about this? Because I think for us, disability isn't something that we're both quite familiar with, to mm. be honest. Like, I don't know if I know like more than I get. I can't, I can't even name you like three people who I know who are physically disabled. And I just think that with that lack of um, interaction and knowledge about this space in general, I felt quite um hesitant I think in speaking up at times mm, and I just wanted to same. give the floor to Matt because yeah because you, you kind of fear that you'd say the wrong thing and and actually in, prepara- in preparation for this Jeff and I actually really researched and looked at you know what terms to use what terms to avoid we didn't want to say the wrong thing or offend anyone so I think with all that all those factors mixed in together we were quite nervous to an extent or at least yeah I was, yeah, I was, in, um, yeah, I was, I was yeah what we wanted to say yeah I, I think we were trying to tiptoe around a lot of the topics mm. we were saying. I was stuttering a bit because I was really being conscious about the words I was selecting. And mm-hmm. I think our mistake was that we went in to try and have a conversation, uh, assuming yeah. that we had some sort of background knowledge. Instead, we should have really mm-hmm. taken more of an exploratory stance, um, done a, like an introduction, like a 101. We should have asked Matt what terms are correct what topics are good to talk about what topics aren't so good to talk about i think we really should have taken a bit more of a backseat and uh, i think for future episodes and uh, we would love to have matt on again but uh, if anyone else (laughs) um, that we talk to in the disability space we should definitely be conscious about that a bit more i think yeah even if it comes to like basic definitions like what is a disability how do you define a disabled person Mm. um i think those are questions that both jeff and i didn't know and I assume most of our listeners don't really know as well or at least mm. a majority of them because you know a key theme that Matt talked about and what we kind of wanted to allude to as well is this idea of representation you know and I think it's so fascinating how we talk about the Asian experience and the lack of representation in our communities but it's even more scarce in you know disabled communities if, mm, exactly. I, you know it's one of those things where there's such great parallels um, between kind of the Asian experience and also the disabled experience, this experience of other being othered um, and not being seen um, represented. Yeah, no, that was something that was I found really profound and something that I frankly felt quite ashamed of not knowing more about. Mm. And I think it really highlights the need for more representation of dis- disabled people in Australia, which I think will lead to this normalization of disability because that's definitely something that Matt advocated for. No, I completely echo that thought. And I think another of his key points was that disabled people are just normal people like you and I as well. You know, they have Mm. uh, hobbies as well. They, you know, they do similar things. They have jobs. They go to university. It's 
the, the last thing you should do is to go up to a disabled person and, you know, point out that they are disabled, you know? The, the most important mm. thing is that they are people too. And that was something you really wanted to drive home is just that we deliberately ostracize them in a lot of ways. We highlight their difference to us and that mm. really impacts them in a lot of ways. And we really should be more conscious as individuals uh, to make a conscious effort to like include them and to see them uh, exactly as you and I. And I think that was probably the point that hit home the most for me and something I've been guilty of myself. I think um, the, the initial emotion you feel when you see someone that's disabled is sadness or, you know, you, you feel bad for them, but that's, that shouldn't be what it is. It should be, mm. you should treat them as an equal. And ultimately that the experience is normalized. I think that is a key mm. goal for them and something we should all hope to achieve. So we're really excited for you to listen to this episode, um, much like how excited mm. we were to to be to live through it, I guess, in, in a weird way. Uh, and I think one thing that just added on to the nervousness was we had lots and lots of technical issues. So we had to keep pausing and oh, we had to keep yeah. restarting. And it was kind of just like sitting there. Uh, Matt lives in London, so he's uh, across halfway across the world. And obviously there's a time difference and he took the time out to chat with us. So uh, really, really, again, really, really excited for you to listen to this one. And uh, afterwards, we're going to be uh, sharing a lot of the resources uh, that Matt has created and, uh, the resources and the links to all his startups and all the activities he's involved in because I think he's working on some super duper exciting stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, just a takeaway um, from this episode that I personally found and I think Jeff found as well and I hope that you guys will find is that you really do, do just learn a lot about a space and about a group of people that often has been ostracized. So I think, you know, having this conversation with him and just having an open mind about it is a really, really good first step to normalizing um, their experience of society. So enjoy. Hi, and welcome back. Um, today, Jeff and I are super excited to have a guest on As I Am. Would you like to introduce Matt? Yeah, sure. Um, today we've got Matt Pierre with us. Uh, he's currently working in the disability policy and advocacy space. He's an Australian lawyer, a Rhodes Scholar, founder of several social ventures and startups, and is also working as a visiting scholar at the Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford. Matt, thank you so much for joining today. How are you going? Uh, yeah, well, thanks, thanks guys for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, going well, thank you. It's um, uh, a rare sunny day in London, so I'm, I'm enjoying that. <laughs> <laughs> got to take advantage of that um i guess that's like a first question are you able to give us a quick overview of everything you've gotten up to over the last couple of years uh sure um so it depends how far back i guess you want to go but um so yeah i was i'm <laughs> from melbourne uh i as i mentioned studied law in melbourne did a jd at the university of melbourne and spent a year working um as a lawyer in melbourne and then moved over in 2016 to the uk to study um two masters at the university of oxford so did a master's in public policy and a master's in social science of the internet um and there i guess just really started to lean into uh, an interest and a passion that i'd always had for um i guess public sector um issues and wanting to kind of figure out a bit more how to make social change in some of the areas that i cared about uh so spent two years um studying in oxford and then spent a third year uh helping the university with some disability accessibility um, policy and, and also trying to figure out how to get better accessibility information for the university and colleges. Um, and at the same time was doing some, a little bit of research at the Blavatnik School around um, stereotypes in disability policy and laws. So how we think about disability um, influencing the types of policy and law that we create and, and therefore reinforcing some of those stereotypes when it's back out in, in society. Um, and at the same time was started working on um, what has now become a startup uh, called Sociability and our our goal is to help disabled people find accessible places. Um, and so essentially we've built a platform through which anyone, whether they're disabled or not, can quickly find, uh, add and share accessibility information for hospitality and retail venues. And the idea is essentially to take out the, the stress and anxiety and tedious research that's involved in finding out whether or not somewhere is accessible for lots of disabled people. And this 
you know, creates a tangible barrier, which impacts their ability to go out and enjoy themselves and their communities and, and explore as freely and as confidently as they should be able to. And that impacts social inclusion. And so our goal is to essentially help facilitate greater social inclusion for disabled people everywhere, um, but also to drive up social representation. I think that's a big issue that we see in terms of the disabled population not being out and about and visible and engaging um, in their communities and therefore um, suffering a little bit in terms of how they're perceived and, and the representation that they have. Um, and so that's what I'm currently doing at the moment um, with most of my time working on sociability and trying to get up and running in the UK, uh, starting in London particularly. Wow, that is fantastic. I feel like, especially for non-disabled people, you know, navigating through space is something we take for granted. So I think um, you're addressing something that I clearly there's a gap in the market for that. So I think it's fantastic that you're addressing this. Um, but yes. I guess going back to um, your research, um, so we read that you're currently researching disability policy at Oxford. Are you able to tell us more about where you're focusing on with that work and your findings so far, essentially? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, it was a bit of a mixture of things. But um, in essence, I was really interested in this idea that particular social perception of disabled people and there's lots of surveys that you know that sort of reveal this in different ways but the general perception and it's not just in the uk it, it happens in australia and happens more broadly across the world is a perception that you know disabled people um need help um are objects of pity and of charity you know have essentially terrible lives and, and don't want to you know do things and and just generally a whole sort of raft of negative perceptions and um a very simple way to see that is well either to spend an afternoon with a disabled person <laughs> uh, going around town um or to you know look at the mainstream media and you'll see the narratives that sort of appear in headlines and newspapers or in movies you know hollywood movies around disability um the narratives are always super uh negative they're very conservative they're very medicalized um and they lead to very low expectations of disabled people in their lives um and the reason that i was interested in this sort of concept of, of narratives and the perception of disability is that i think this fundamentally um what impacts disabled people's quality of life so obviously accessibility in a physical sense things like that are quite important but culturally if people don't think that disabled people are equal if they don't think they're capable if they don't think that they're interested in you know living lives um, to the fullest extent then even if you produce all the right you know accommodations and you create systems that allow disabled people to thrive when people non-disabled people make decisions about disabled people they'll still impact they'll still like um import a lot of negative perception and that will then mean that you know the disabled person might get the job interview but they still won't get the job because there's culturally this mm. perception of disability yeah. mm. so um that's like something that i'm really interested in and as someone with a disability you know it's something that i definitely face a lot of the time um then i wanted to figure out essentially where this comes from um, and I don't think it's a simple answer as, you know, it comes from, from here. Let's just, from X, let's go and stop that. Um, but one of the things that I uh, was trying to figure out is whether um, essentially structural factors, so things like laws and policies, um, mm. uh, regulations, things that seem objective or at least kind of created in some sort of, you know, demographic, uh, sorry, in some sort of like uh, democratic process or consensus whether those feed into these um stereotypes um uh, and essentially you know uh the research is not really finished to be honest but um what i was figuring out what i was finding was that um you know it's it's circular and so it's um the way in which we perceive disability impacts the way in which we think about what policies and laws need to be implemented because you know, it impacts how we see disability um, and the problems that are associated. And we typically create policies and laws to solve problems. Um, and then if you create those policies and laws with a particular understanding or a particular stereotype of a disabled person in them and what they want to do and how they behave and how they interact with the world, then a lot of the time, in order for disabled people to benefit from those policies and laws, they have to perform that stereotype because otherwise they don't fit into the box. They don't tick the categories of the form. They don't, you know, qualify for the various things that they're entitled to and when you, you know, essentially funnel people into this performance of this stereotype uh i am concerned that you also then reinforce that stereotype to both the disabled mm. people and to non-disabled people because everybody's experience of disability um is sort of partly 
partly framed around these these factors of how they interact with yeah policies and laws um uh from informal ones to formal ones um and so like you know there's a whole bunch of different examples but um just to give a couple uh you know if i depending on where in the world i am if i go to get a bus um often some of these mm. buses have uh little ramps that can come out at the doorway um, i use a wheelchair for context um and so you know you have to press a button and then what typically happens is um you press a button a siren sounds everybody has to clear the space uh, a ramp you know comes out you will into the mm. into the space and you have to face backwards you know you're the only person on the bus facing backwards and in some countries you actually actually get strapped to the floor um, now on a practical sense the bus is made wheelchair accessible by having a ramp um, in in a kind of personal sense the disabled person isn't is very much othered right like there's a big siren there's a big fanfare yeah. you're the only person facing yeah. backwards sure. you're strapped to the floor no one else is strapped to the floor right mm-hmm. um you have old people and babies sitting in chairs facing forwards without seat belts but you as a disabled person you know you don't get afforded the same sort of experience um and that's that's a policy decision that's been made and often sometimes a law that's been made by you know a government or the bus company or whatever it is that seeks to be inclusive but in many respects just reinforces this stereotype um, and one of the problems I think related to this is there's typically a lack of flexibility. So you as a disabled person don't have any agency to say, well, I, I don't need this or I, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable facing mm. forward or I can, I'm strong enough to hold the bars or whatever. You, you, you are disabled, therefore you tick the box and therefore you have to follow these rules. Um, and that happens yeah. on a whole raft of different, different things. You know, if I go to get a train here, I have to book 48 hours in advance. I have to ring up and make sure that there's somebody you know who knows i'm coming i have to go and get a person to walk me to the train to unlock two doors to put down a ramp to let me on the train um so when i go to get a train even though i can get on the train now even though typically there's only two seats available on the whole train for wheelchair users um i'm not equal in the sense of no one else there is booking these kind of things and required to tick off all these sorts of um preconditions before they can use the train and so i think part of the problem is when we think about how we create these um systems to accommodate disabled people we don't actually think about what it is that we're you know subjecting them to um, and how we actually empower them to be properly equal and then also what the narrative that we're telling them we're telling other people about disability in order to um when we actually create some of these inclusive minimally inclusive policies yeah, it's a long-winded way of saying that. Yeah, I think. absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's really really interesting, and I'm going to be completely honest. Not something I've really thought about a lot, and I think that really does speak to the problem. I guess with that bus example, um, I'm, I'd just be curious to know: in an ideal world, how would that solution look? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good, it's a really good question because you know, just the bus example, um, you know, itself obviously has a few different factors at play. The main one of which is, is typically also occupational health and safety. And so lots of people will say, well, it's for their own safety, which, um, is definitely a valid concern, but I think we use it. It's weaponized in different ways and for different marginal groups and for disabled people, their own safety is very kind of problematic term because I think it's, it's used in sort of this bilent, um, kind of, oppressive way where it's like this is for your own benefit Mm. therefore we have to do this Mm. and that's i guess the problem it's that disabled people aren't afforded the same agency to make decisions about themselves as non-disabled people are so in that example i think in a similar sense you know you have a ramp you come out potentially have a noise so that people move but when you get onto the into the bus you have the ability to sit in the space you know how you want um, and you have the choice to use the seat belt or to be strapped to the floor if you need to um, or to sit backwards if that's more comfortable but you're not forced to and i think when you know typically if i get on a bus and and sit forward somebody says you have to turn around um or you have to be strapped to the floor and if i know it's uncomfortable not doing that there isn't this sense of okay great that's an adult you know in this space who's chosen to make a decision it's but that's a wheelchair user therefore they have to do these things and actually a lot of the time i've been either kicked off the bus because i wouldn't comply with those things um or i've just had to wait and essentially argue um uh, with with the bus drivers, which again is one of these things where yeah. it's it's not in, it's not truly inclusive or empowering. Um, so yeah, I think a large part of um, the missing link here is the understanding that disability is incredibly nuanced, and that's how people fall into all sorts of different categories. Um, 
you know, of ability, of, you know, interest, of, um, you know, ambition. And that's fine. That's that's the human condition, right? It, just because you're disabled doesn't mean all of a sudden you are now mm-hmm. not all the other things that you were. Um, but two, it's just this general sense that we don't empower disabled people to decide things for themselves. And we typically mask it under this kind of benevolence of like, it's for your own safety. You know, it's for your own benefit. We've yeah. done this to help yeah. you. And it's like potentially you know, maybe you should have asked us if we wanted this help before before you made that decision. And I think that sort of lack of co-creation is problematic. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I'm surprised that um, there's not more consultation with disability groups and advocates when it comes to policy making and making, you know, obviously these very tangible, I guess, rules in place, you know, public transport, that's something that's so simple but something that you know we all use right um so yeah i mean it's crazy i mean what is the research on that like do you find that often disability groups are consulted with and spoken to um when it comes to these changes and hopefully reforms or do you think there's still a gap when it comes to um communication and having that open channel with disability groups yeah i think it's one of these things where in theory it works and in practice it doesn't and so there is often particularly now there's mm-hmm. i think like previously that there definitely wasn't much consultation but now there is much more consultation the issue is like what is the sort of the nature of the input and how like thoroughly um involved are disabled people and then also like to what level of engagement um they're, they're they are brought in when people are designing these sorts of things so i can give you like you can take the, the train example for instance um in the UK, there's a new set of trains, you know, um, that, that went between Oxford and London, which were brand new. They came in in 2019 or something. Um, now, on the train, there there is the ability to get onto the train as a wheelchair user. Um, but as I mentioned, you have to sort of ask someone, and even just the physical infrastructure, they have to unlock two things to then have, like, you know, these um, connection connective bits fold out and they have to get a ramp off a rack that's you know physically nearby the train and then hook it onto the train and then you know that's the wheelchair accessible option um now i imagine i wasn't involved in this obviously but i imagine the consultation went something on the lines of wheelchair users need ramps to get onto the train you know they inside the train they want a space and they want an accessible bathroom etc um and, and that was you know definitely uh, an important thing for this train company to want to do, but they've gone ahead and built it in a way that doesn't empower wheelchair users to then use that ramp by themselves yeah. or to use that ramp yeah. with other, you know, with their friends or family. Like there's just the one area for wheelchair users to sit. And, you know, if there's, if there's two wheelchair users traveling together, then that, that's it. Like the whole train is now full of wheelchair users, you know? So like if me and two friends who both use wheelchairs, we couldn't get on the train together. Um, uh, and so there's all these, you know, it's a very surface level thing. Somebody said, we need a ramp. They've got great, we build a ramp. Um, but if you had involved disabled people in the process much more thoroughly, you would have realized that in order for the accessibility accommodation to be functional, it has to be much more than just compliance. And I think that's one of the problems. We see that when disabled people are involved, it's typically in like a minimum standard compliance level. You know, mm-hmm. you have a disabled bathroom, you have a lift, you have a ramp, whatever it is. Um, but when you actually think, why have we got these things, right? Like, why do we have a ramp or a toilet here or, or whatever it is? It's not just to have a, the, the box on the you know construction form or the regulation form ticked off. It's to allow someone to do something functionally. And a lot of the time that level is missing. You'll have the compliant, you know, mechanism there or the compliant accommodation and that's probably where the consultation has resulted in you know we need these things because we ask to sell people but it doesn't go the step further which is and how should they work and how should we actually think about how someone uses this and i think that's where we find that the like consultation with disabled people um isn't as you know genuine or sincere or as kind of ongoing as it should be it's often just they come in they say a couple of things those things are then taken interpreted a particular way by decision makers and they move on and i think one of the big problems here is that we just need more disabled people making decisions about these things rather than being consulted you know as kind of you know people who are dropped in to help give advice they should just be in the process um fundamentally yeah yeah absolutely i think um i'm starting to see a lot of parallels um, and I guess like one of the main reasons why I wanted to chat with you about this topic was because it's actually not spoken about, um, a lot in Asian cultures. Um, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of sort of cultural nuances to that. And it's kind of, it's starting to piece together for me. And I guess like one of the ways we wanted to prepare for this episode, Isabella and I were, we want to just chat to our parents about the topic. Um, it's not something I mm. can ever recollect ever talking about. And I think obviously I can't speak for 
and we can't speak for every single Asian country out there. I'm sure each one is a little bit different. Um, but for me, coming from a Chinese background, I guess the first thing to preface is that um, in China, about 75% of the uh, disabled population lives in rural areas uh, versus 25% in urban. And that split is also accentuated by a system that the country has, which is called the Hukou system. It's, it's essentially like a domestic passport. Um, you're given, uh, I think it was after when the cultural war ended, the re- re- revolution, sorry. Um, and you were just given this document, which essentially dictated your rights within the country. It was your mm-hmm. access to healthcare and education and public services. And obviously rural holders had a lot less benefits compared to the urban ones. So I guess that in itself is already a bit of a problem, but I guess coming to the topic, when I was talking to my parents, my mum kind of grew up around an environment where she said she doesn't really remember interacting with many disabled people, but for dad, um, who was also um, from an urban area, he said his best friend's dad um, was physically disabled and kind of the whole time um, he would have basically every one of his needs taken care of. um, Mm. And it was sort of like a, we know what's better for you. Uh, in a lot of ways like there wasn't again that um, empowerment to like make your own decisions it was just like do this do that and they that was just kind of the culture of like what they what they know and mm-hmm. that concept that ties in a bit more is in 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 china there's a concept called like filial piety so i think that gets accentuated especially when maybe your parent is a disabled individual and you feel that there's this obligation to just like force all this care on them mm-hmm. and just bring it out a bit more. And I think like from my mom's side, it was just like the idea of the collective is also quite strong. It's just like maybe the issue was prevalent around her, but there is this kind of concept about like, if we all collectively ignore, it doesn't really exist. Yep. Um, I think like a recent example I kind of saw that in was, have you do not movie the, the farewell uh, also like an ad for it and had like Aquafina. And it's basically about mm. a grandma uh, who has uh, cancer and she's about to die but her family chooses not to tell her right. um, because they think it's better for her. Mm. And I think that that kind of event gets repeated a lot of times across a lot of contexts. And I think in the disabled individual's context, it's no different. Um, but I, I don't know, Isabella, what, how did your conversation go? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, my parents, like, like Jeff's as well, um, I think the topic of disability doesn't really come up Um, in the family like you know I'm talking about both mental and physical disabilities Mm -hmm. Um, and when I asked them about their perspective on physical disabilities a lot of the time it's just like oh you know it's just like bad luck and you know it's a shame we look you know it's a pity like we obviously feel sorry for them Um, but I mean that's just my family's perspective Um, but when I kind of looked more into the Vietnamese kind of perspective so yeah I'm Vietnamese Matt Um, (laughs) Vietnamese perspective on how disabilities are perceived. So there are essentially two general uh, perspectives on disability in Vietnamese society. So the traditional view is that a disabled person is, it's the way they are essentially because it's like essentially punishment um, for the sins committed by their ancestors. Um, So it's like within this context um, that it's associated with a lot of shame, a lot of pity, um, which is actually quite, it's it's I, I find it quite tragic actually because it's because of this that often in Vietnamese families there's this level of you know um, shame and kind of you you want like disabled people are often hidden from the public view but that's the thing though like I want to emphasize that this is the traditional view um, it's largely outdated and I don't think it really holds um, it anymore essentially in modern Vietnamese society it's something that my family certainly doesn't really believe in anymore um, but that's kind of like the context of where disability was situated in Vietnam you know a country that was deeply religious and um, deeply Buddhist I should say as well um, but I guess the modern perspective now is that, you know, it's something that often is because of the results of war. So, you know, Agent Orange, as I've mentioned, landmines and casualties from war, um, industrial labor and traffic accidents. So that's the thing, though, like even though this newer perspective does treat disabled people with more humility, there's still this perception of dis- uh, disabled people essentially as victims. And I think that's something that's still quite omnipresent in how Asian communities view people, uh, disabled people, essentially. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think, Matt. Like, obviously, you know, this is coming from a, you know, 
different perspective and different culture. Um, how do you find that that compares to how the West views disabled people? Um, That's a very loaded yeah. question. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, yeah, no, I mean, well, thanks for thanks for both of your thoughts on, on the kind of cultural elements. I mean, so uh, probably two things here. Like one, my mum is Thai, so um, our like family similarly has um, an Asian, you know, uh, perception of disability, at least in some in some senses. Mm. Um, and so I spent a fair bit of time in Thailand and, and no other Asian countries, um, whether it's in China or Hong Kong or um, or around you know Southeast Asia. Um, and so from that perception, I think I definitely agree with what you you guys both said. Obviously this is just like anecdotal stuff but i think one of the things i found particularly in asian countries is um you know there's an interesting kind of conflation of like like what you said jeff around like the filial piety and like essentially elderly people and the care that you need to um you know confer on them uh and disabled people generally and so i think one of the things that um i found very understandable but frustrating um, you know, when I was in China or in Thailand, is this sense of like people have to do everything for you because you you can't, and that mm. that that is just partly this conflation of like, you know, if you if you are old, therefore you know people presume you just can't do things and you need help and that sort of thing. Um, but if you're disabled and you're young or you're capable, then it doesn't really matter because you've again this idea that you've ticked a box, therefore you fall into this category and all the other things flow on. Um, and mm. I just remember it's it's often very hard to to refuse assistance. Um, in these contexts, you yeah. know, people say like, you have to like, oh, let me help you, or like, let me do this, and you're like, no, oh, it's fine, I don't need. Like, no, 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 don't be silly. And then it's like this sort of almost like, don't be rude, just like let me let me do this for you. Um, mm, so again, yeah. this sort of sense yeah. of agency being taken away, which I think is a very mm. common thing across all cultures around disabled people and the way in which they're engaged um, with. Um, but I think the point about the shame, the kind of punishment or it's like the victimhood of being disabled and the sort of shame associated with that um that you mentioned isabella i think is is definitely real um you know particularly this sense of of um you, you've deserved this or you've done something and therefore this is your punishment um is is a is i think less prevalent in the west in in the kind of yeah reincarnation or the sort of religious sense but i think in the the whether or not the kind of blame is put on the person or not there's this hugely um prevalent sense of victimhood in disability um and the same the same kind of effects happen you know whether or not the person is sort of has the the shame because it's something they've done or just because they are disabled and you know they've got this bad thing that you know um they feel embarrassed about and people just don't want to talk about and people just kind of want to put out a view um i think is, is a distinction probably between the western um, and eastern cultures uh at least in a modern sense um but i think the victimhood thing is consistent and that is where mm-hmm. the same kind of approach of pity and of charity and this sense of, of needing to um feel sorry for people and, and help them um is is kind of most problematic because it just means you're essentially never equal with anybody um Mm. and even though you can get benefits right like you do you do obviously get assistance and, and lots of disabled people do need assistance i don't want to sort of dismiss that i think that's really important but it's not an empowered sort of form of assistance and i like a good example is like you know um if either of you two are walking in the street carrying lots of bags like from the supermarket somebody might come and say like oh do you want a hand um and that would be like typically a generous situation right like the presumption there is you're probably fine but like i could just help you and that would be a nice mm. thing to do um for disabled people it's, it's often the same thing of like oh you know if i was carrying a bunch of bags in the street somebody would probably come and try and help me um but there's the presumption that like i need help because of my disability um and often and i've had this uh, you know lots of times where if you refuse help people actually get offended or upset because they're like i'm doing a good thing why won't you accept it? Really? Um, I, oh yeah, gosh. I once had a woman come um, and try to push me up a hill. Um, and I said, oh, no, I'm fine, thank you. And she said, oh, let me do it. And I said, oh, honestly, I, I don't need it. It's fine, like, please. And she said, no, no don't be silly. I, like, I want to help you. Um, and she pushed mm. me. And I just, like, sort of stopped. I, like, I just grabbed my wheels. I was like, no, no, that, I'll be fine, thank you. And she just, like, looked at me. And as she walked off, she said, you try to help some people. And she just, like, oh. you know, as if I, like, I, like, stopped her from doing Jeez. a good deed for the day. And I was like, wow, oh like, my God. it's good to know that, like, as the person who was supposedly being helped, it, they can, <laughs> you know, 
they cared not whether or not I needed it or wanted it. Like I'm, I wasn't the subject of that interaction, right? Like I was there as the object to help this person feel better. Yeah. Um, and that I think is a huge thing that some people get. It's it's a ch- this super problematic mentality of charity that, and this is you know it's Absolutely. interesting to look into the origins mm. of charity and you know kind of the like where this sort of comes from because charity in a lot of sense comes from. Uh, in a lot of senses, comes from this idea of essentially moral, you know, uh, absolution it, that you, as a person who'd done bad things, could go and do good things to essentially, you know, mm. rebalance the ledger, um, and you know, pay, papal indulgences and things like that. Exactly. And so, this kind of perception that disability um, is something that's terrible and people are victims, and then you combine it with this sense of, you know, we need help and that kind of thing, often creates this very toxic in- environment in which people are helping disabled people, not to help the disabled person, but in order to do a good mm. deed or feel good mm. or to be seen as somebody yeah. assisting. And again, this it all comes back to this idea of taking away agency from disabled people and not actually empowering them in a way that helps them, you know, flourish and grow and get to that mm. next stage, but essentially traps them in this cycle of dependence upon uh, upon assistance. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm actually super interested in because, like, I guess like this year has been kind of a catalyst for a lot of social change in a lot of ways. You think like Black Lives Matters, um, showing bushfires. People are very much getting into the idea of like I need to create change in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess one of the big problems that we've seen that's tied with that is the idea of virtue signaling. Yeah. Has that made any difference in the disability community? Like, are people sort of actively trying to make a difference? But maybe it is in, like, the case of the woman that tried to put you up the hill a bit more superficial. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think it does it does play out. You know, it depends on who, like, the communities that are involved, obviously. So, because um, I think that in two in two senses, this year has been a huge catalyst and hopefully a very positive one to the disabled community. Mm. I think one coronavirus or the lockdowns that you know, subsequently came, have really emphasized to people in a very like, you know, widespread empathy exercise, what it's like when the outside world is not designed for you, right? What it's like when you can't leave the house, when you don't know where the place that you're going is safe, where you don't know, you know, whether you have to, you know, shield or wear a mask or things like that, because essentially there's this like hidden thing that is around, potentially get you, potentially not. And for lots of sale people, that's what the world is like all the time. They don't know if they can go out into it the things aren't designed for them you know they have to kind of do alternative um uh versions of everything whether it's alternative routes to a place or alternative entrances to get in or alternative conditions once you're inside etc etc so there is this sense that you can just go out and do whatever you want without planning everything is very thoroughly researched and prepared and you lose the spontaneity and also you lose largely the variety um so coronavirus and lockdowns have i think given people an insight into what it's like being disabled in many respects the point about like I think social movements and the need for social change is on the whole I think a really positive one because it's just revealed that there are definitely more important things than you know efficiency in a very kind of classical economic sense of like you know we need things to be fast and to make the most money and the biggest output and be productive etc and if we do those things we won't have a society that is you know best place to look after people and best place to deal with problems um, and also just a place that you want to live um, so I think that sort of reconceptualization from like the economy and how we factor in health and how we care about people who are um, you know are on the margins I think is is hopefully a positive one and, and I hope that this kind of new normal that we're talking about is much more inclusive and accessible in that sense but two I think there's this idea definitely that like now people have to people have to be at least outwardly um aware of of inclusion and of minority groups and of diversity and if you're not then all of a sudden it's it's not cool you know anymore like being elitist and being um you know discriminatory and stuff uh, aren't things that will be applauded at least publicly anymore which you know for years they mm-hmm. were right like let's be blunt about that like people blatantly discriminated against whole bunches of groups and were succeeding you know whether it was um, sexism or racism or whatever um so now I think there's this public perception that you have to, like I said, virtue, virtue signal or at least like at least publicly commit to different things. Um, and I think on the whole, that's a positive, right? Like much like affirmative action has its role to play in a bunch of these things and catalyzing um, change, even if it's not as sincere, I think it is important that the narrative starts to shift and people start to have to think about these things in their actions, whether or not it's as sincere as it should be. Ultimately, of mm. course, though, I think the problem is that we do want these things to be sincere because otherwise they won't last and they're sustainable and we don't want exactly, tokenism exactly. and that sort of stuff. So I think it's not a bad thing that it has been prompted and been catalyzed because I think at the end of the day, just giving, you know, 
what we talk about, what we think about influences what we act upon. And if, if we, even if we mm. get positive action, that's potentially, you know, slightly insincere, I think on the whole, that's good to be honest. But I think it's the question of how we entrench that and sustain that and essentially use this kind of like, you know, injection or like this step up that people um, have, have been given now to ensure that these sorts of things don't just disappear. You know, Black Lives Matters doesn't just fizzle out into into another social movement or another kind of flare up like in the past. And a lot of these, um, uh, you know, particularly racial um, civil rights movements, um, they haven't had that kind of, they've, they've had lit a spark, but they haven't just had the the kind of the light sort of continue on. I think the same thing is is true now for lots of other movements and the dis- disability rights yeah, movement absolutely. is definitely not as prominent as, um, you know, race or, or sexism um, in terms of issues that we've acted upon. Um, and so it just kind of, it does, it itself needs a bit more support and kind of, um, yeah, really positive concerted effort to, to get it, high on the change agenda so i'm i'm hopeful that some of this stuff will help catalyze that but i'm a little bit skeptical that it will just you know the the kind of snowball has started i still think there's a bit of work to do in terms of making it actually mainstream and entrenching it properly yeah no i absolutely agree on that note matt what do you propose are the steps to meaningfully destigmatize these abilities both mental and physical um It'd be great if you're able to kind of discuss how these steps can also be catered to an Asian audience as well. You mentioned that, you know, your mother is Thai. Do you think there are potentially different ways that um, these messages can be communicated to different audiences? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question and definitely one that uh, I've thought about a lot but don't have an answer to um, to you know sort of uh, <laughs> ruin the suspense there. But, um, I mean, I have a few different things in mind. So one of the things, um, so I... Um, co-founded a charity back in Melbourne called Wheels in Motion with some of my school friends and the reason that sort of we had um, I had an accident in school uh, playing footy so I had spinal cord injury and that's why I use a wheelchair Um, and about five well longer about eight years later we decided that um, you know we wanted to start uh, Wheels in Motion to help essentially overcome um, some of the barriers associated with uh, having a disability um, and one of the key things was around this changing perception. But I think the, where we settled was that um, the easiest way, or the most effective way at least, um, to change perceptions of people is, you know, like, uh, it's not a novel idea, but it's through this idea of contact theory, um, which is essentially that you just have people interact with, with people from minority groups. Um and so mm. the idea is essentially mm. that if you have disabled and non-disabled people interacting, um, you just start to break down some of those things. And that's because a lot of the times these stereotypes are, you know, they're not necessarily, there's a good quote, but I forgot exactly what it is. It says something like, the problem with stereotypes isn't that they aren't true, it's that they're incomplete. And I think it's, it's a very, that's mm. the part of the lens that we take in terms of this. Like definitely some of the reasons, you know, that pe- disabled people have these stereotypes because they do need help and they do need assistance and all these things are, are true to some extent. The problem is that isn't the full picture of who they are, right? They they have other things um, that they want to do. They have really important, you know, um, goals and ambitions and dreams that aren't facilitated. Um, and that's because we only think about disability in this very narrow sense. And so part of what we try to do with emotion is to actually broaden that by just essentially, you know, having people interact with disabled people as other, you know, as as people sounds silly but um and when you start Mm. to do that disability just becomes another element of someone's personality or their diversity right so much like um you know now we're much more comfortable talking about sexual you know orientation and and gender and race and things like that um i just don't think we've met the same level of comfort in terms of disability as like just an element of somebody's existence that factors in um you know i very much get asked a lot of the time by when i meet people why are you using wheelchair what happened or things like that um you don't go and ask a gay person why are you gay or like you know what what's it like being gay things like that like we just don't do that mm-hmm. anymore so right true. um but yeah. for disabled people this is still like a defining characteristic that people just like block out everything else um and that that i think is a problem so to answer your question as well i think one of the huge things is just facilitating interactions with disabled people in in um uh, essentially non-like 
uh, spotlighted fashions, right? It's not like, this is the disabled person. Let's yeah. talk to them and see what they think about stuff. Mm. It's just getting them, it's getting the disabled population into the community, into cafes, into restaurants, into workforce, into education. So that when you're at a place, whether you're at work or you're at school or you're having dinner, you see and interact with disabled people. And obviously there's problems, you know, because lots of disabilities are invisible, but I think the point still stands that until you start to generate this mm. um, momentum, that disabled people are out and about, they're in society and you will interact with them and that's fine and nothing nothing bad happens from that. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't meet a disabled person and come away with a disability or you don't get, you know, sick or mm. blah, blah. Um, then people will just start to normalize this. And once that happens, I think at a large enough scale, we just start to shift the narrative that disability is this particular kind of weird thing that happens to some people and, you, you know, it sounds bad, but we don't really know much about it. Because you start to remove the ignorance and the lack of awareness. Um, yeah. Now, the problem is, is how do you do that at scale? Like, obviously, you can't just have everybody have a disabled friend or family member or whatever. Um, so one of the things that we think is really important is is the media and the perception of disabled people in the media because that's how lots of people... Mm. Um, mm-hmm that's how lots of people learn about other other things, you know, mm. and other people. And so getting more disabled people into the media, um, I think is a huge important thing. Getting more disabled people into like cultural representations, whether it's into books or songs or movies, um, as just people, you know, as characters, not the, not the disabled mm. person mm. and not the disabled character, but just like the, you know, the protagonist of a film just happens to use a wheelchair. That would be something that I think like would just be game changing mm. in the sense of how we perceive disability um, or they're blind or whatever. Not like this is the disabled person in the friendship group who we now just have to kind of, you know, <laughs> acknowledge and tick off the box. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is part of your point, Jeff, around like how do we get the sort of not just the virtue signaling, but the much more sincere interaction. And when you think about it, one fifth of the population is disabled, whether it's a physical or mental disability. Um, so it's not like we're just picking the five people that exist and trying to un- unfairly, mm-hmm. you know, spotlight them. This is the thing that if if you if we, we were properly representative, you know, every movie, um, every fifth person would have a disability, right? That's not how it happens, right? Or every yeah. advertisement you see on television or on the you know on the billboards things like that, every fifth person would have a disability. Um, that doesn't happen. Um, it's something like less than two percent of people in the media have disabilities. So um, I think that is a big thing for us. Like it's just one this idea of contact theory and engaging. Uh, non-disabled people with disabled people in everyday interactions but to in terms of looking to scale it I think it's um, I think the media has a huge role to play um, in this yeah absolutely and it's actually so interesting that you touch on that because um, in a I, I think a couple episodes ago Jeff and I talked about the importance of representation and you know the lack of Asian representation essentially in the media and the the goal is to essentially you know have Asian people play the role of the protagonist but not in the capacity mm. of an Asian Usually, person yeah. just like yeah. to play just a protagonist who happens mm. to be Asian and 100% the same you know thing applies to disabled people um, I think it's so important to be intersectional in that sense so yeah I'm all I'm all for this I think this is a would be a fantastic way forward cool sorry I'm just I'm just I'm just processing this a lot this Matt, I mean this like sincerely. This might be my favorite episode so far because I just feel like I'm learning a lot. Um, okay, learning so just, much. Yeah, it's just it's just taking me. It's, I'm just processing the, a little bit. But I, I hope that's not the first episode. But <laughs> but um, I it, no, it's not, it's not. No, it's not the first episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's just really sort of like redefining how I view disabled people essentially, and it's a lot of yeah, the time. Yeah, for sure. I feel like it's I think, there's so many parallels with. Sorry, you go. Oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say, and I think this is one of the things we don't factor into disability when we think about it. It's that actually disability is indiscriminate. Like you can become disabled through an accident or, you know, um, becoming by simply becoming old or, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think unlike things like, you know, racial or gender, which are obviously much harder to change, um, people become disabled all the time. And that, I think, is one of the things we don't factor into how we, what we we think about, you know, the social empowerment that we need to do. It's not, it's not just like a, there's a bunch of disabled people and they're a kind of immutable population who remain like that and they do their own things. And if we want to help them every now and then, that's great. It's like everybody and anybody can become disabled at some point. Mm. Um, and the accommodations that we put in place to empower disability and to empower disabled people benefit everybody else from just very practical things like mm you know, what's commonly called the curb cut effect. Um, 
curb cuts, you know, the drops from footpaths into roads or put in for wheelchair users, but everybody benefits from them, right? Like whether you're pushing a pram or you're carrying, you know, or you've got a suitcase mm. with you or you're, you know, yeah. pushing a trolley or whatever it is. Like that's just a very crude example, but like the whole idea is that by making spaces more inclusive and accessible, you don't disadvantage um, other people. You just make, you, you, you raise everybody else up. And the same thing I think goes in terms of, you know, cultural inclusion, the more diverse and, and um, uh, inclusive environments that we create, we get better ideas, we get better discussions, we get better relationships, mm -hmm. you know, um, and disability for the longest time, I think has just been entirely cut out of this discussion. Um, when you look at companies that talk about diversity and inclusion, they almost never reference disability, which mm. is ridiculous given really it's a true. fifth of the population. No, super true. I guess, I guess like you did talk about this on the sort of like addressing the structural issue. And I guess like there has to be a change both, I guess, bottom up and top down in a lot of ways. Like we as individuals just within our immediate circles have to change the way we approach a situation, but there also needs to be essential structural changes and I guess like for us, we're sort of interested in how um, Asia has tackled this issue. And mm -hmm. for us, kind of in the research, it seemed quite uh, structured versus taking a more holistic approach to how you um, address disability. A lot of the time, the definitions, uh, I looked at South Korea, they had like a disability hierarchy for many years. It was sort of mm -hmm. like you were on the six point scale um, and your ranking basically determined the amount of care you were entitled to and sort of the benefits you were entitled to. Sure. Um, and this was done from a solely medical point of view. And then similar thing in China, the language is very much um, biological um, versus yeah. like considering other factors. I, I guess like, is this approach similar to what's being done from the, in, in Western countries? Has this sort of, have people moved on from this or is this sort of still the standard? Yeah, the West is, you know, and I'm hesitant to sort of say like the West, but like the least kind of in, um, uh, yeah, like in, in um, countries like Australia and the UK and the US and, uh, Canada. So, in in non-Asian countries that I've been involved with, typically the thinking is a little bit more progressed from essentially what is called the medical model of disability, which is what you're talking about here, mm. um, Jeff. Where essentially disabled people are their disability is measured on a scale of of their impairment, physical or mental impairment. And typically, like you also said, the the more impaired they are, the more care they you know qualify mm. for, but also necessitate. And um, the sort of more, the kind of more um, contemporary thinking is around this idea of a social model of disability that also has its flaws. But the general idea is that essentially people are disabled not by their impairments, like my spinal cord injury or being blind, but by society not being set up to accommodate that, right? So the fact that I, you know, have a spinal cord injury is only relevant if there are stairs instead of a ramp. And those are design choices that were made, you know, by people building the environment. And so, um, this sense that like actually you can disable people more or less by the the way in which you set up a society around them i think is a really fundamental point because one it's far easier at least in theory sometimes but mm. it's far easier to change the physical environment to, to change people's bodies and their you know their their health um but two it again shifts the burden from the disabled person to society and to uh, a structure that is much more capable of of making changes at a wholesale level um, and so the, yeah, I think the medical model is, is outdated. Um, it has its benefits in the sense of it acknowledges that there are just, there are certain inherent differences in a person's, um, body, which mean they need different things. And I think the problem is less, is less that realization as like the kind of the value judgment associated with it. So the part of the problem with the medicalization of disability is that it makes it something to, fix or something to get rid of right it essentially means you're sick and everybody wants to be healthy so what do you do to fix the problem mm -hmm. um instead of just kind of acknowledging that just you know disabled people have different bodies and different you know mental capacities mm -hmm. and they operate in different ways much like tall people and short people will interact with the world in different ways you know or, um, or men and male and female not that one is better or worse so there's definitely a role to play in the sense of understanding disability from a physical or medic medical perspective but like we don't we need to avoid medicalizing it in the sense of sort of diagnosing something as unhealthy or healthy and therefore good or bad mm. um and this the social model sort of takes it to the other extreme where the person is, is sort of less relevant to be honest but um i think we're probably kind of coming back now um to somewhere just like that combines those two a little bit more um 
thoughtfully where most of the most of the kind of responsibilities put on society to um, to adapt and change and become more inclusive but there is also an awareness and acknowledgement mm. that say people have different mm. bodies and different you know kind of capacities and that's fine and I think that last point is important and that is that's okay and we don't need to seek to um, fix them yeah absolutely do you see there kind of being a link between the wealth of a country and how well off they are and how meaningful their policy is is it do you feel like it's a priority on the agenda like is it something that you know it's something like the top of the list and it's something they want to address a lot but or is it sort of like they value potentially just like economic growth like policies are addressed around that instead yeah um yeah to be honest i'm not sure uh but i definitely don't think like there isn't a very there isn't a simple kind of correlation between like wealthier economically wealthier countries and sort of better yeah. disability um support or kind of disabled policies and mm. part of that is because of the cultural perception stuff right so to your point of just because a country is economically prosperous doesn't necessarily mean they have a good understanding of of social care or you know like take the us for example right like countries that a very large economy mm. doesn't have universal health care you know mm. like just a very kind of um flawed view of how health and work tie together right like why should i have to now i'm gonna go on a slight tangent but like why should i have to get a job in order to get health care presumably having good health is a precondition mm. to getting a good job you know what i mean um or being able to work so mm. and i think the same sort of holds true for disability just because there are uh, essentially wealthier countries that have the capacity to make changes and provide more support doesn't necessarily mean that they value making those changes and providing support um, as something to do with that money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been so insightful. I have learned so much. I mean, is there... Uh, do you feel hopeful about the future though, Sorry. Matt? Like, do you feel like we are on... Or society as a whole is on the right track to, you know, having more inclusive spaces, um, more representation for disabled people? Yeah, I mean, I am hopeful, and yeah. I think I think we're on the right track. Definitely, I think you know, had had I had my accident, you know, fifty years ago, it would have been a very different view to now. And similarly, if I have if I had had my accident in ten years' time, it'd be a very different world to to mm. ten years ago. Um, so I think that's really good. I think part of it is just this mm. general trending upwards mm. of of inclusion and you know understanding that minority groups. Um, <laughs> aren't a bad thing you know in the, in the sense of that diversity is important mm. and that we need to they're not going to hurt of, you yeah exactly and this is true the asian narrative right of like um this is what's happening uh for asian cultures around the world that there is this general empowerment that's happening rather than sort of being this like other um and and hopefully that is a thing that's happening across a whole bunch of different um uh you know spheres um and i think disability is definitely on track to have that impact. I think the question is how fast will it be and how thorough mm -hmm. will it be? Um, and for for my part, like I, one of the things I'm increasingly keen to do is help catalyze that process. Um, and I think I'm also excited because I think technology has the benefit, has the potential to really impart a lot of benefits for the disabled population. Um, both for one of this point about like people's physical impairments and mental impairments. Technology is a huge potential to remove some of those barriers you know like for instance like right now we're having this conversation over the internet we don't need to physically be in the mm. same room i didn't have to get to where you were i didn't have to overcome transport or physical barriers mm. to you know to do that um that's just one example where time and space which are typically things that disabled people um you know face barriers in they're able to we can we can remove those things and technology has the scope to i think make a huge difference to the lives of disabled people if we start to properly think about um what the problems are that we can solve with technology but then also if we start to invest in it if we have you know the top minds and, and top funding and stuff coming into the space um so that's something which i think is definitely changing um and and hopefully has its you know flow on impacts into a whole bunch of other sectors of, of life for disabled people no absolutely and i, th I think this is going to be something that i'm going to be for thinking sure. about a lot more um as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm usually <laughs> cool. quite a bit of a, I'm usually quite a bit of a talker, but I'm, I'm just kind of sitting here pondering a lot of the time. But honestly, Matt, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, super duper articulate individual, and we're super impressed by all that you've achieved. Thank and you. so, like, yeah. honestly, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and have a speak to us um, from <laughs> all the way across the world. I, I guess I guess we'll just wrap it up there. But 
We'll include mm-hmm. basically all your information, sociability apps. Um, if any of our listeners want to get in touch or get and get involved by any chance. Um, but again, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time out. No pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Awesome. And uh, we'll catch you guys on the next one. Bye. See you later. <laughs>